Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Kevin Wade on the show. And today is hump day, Wednesday, March 10th. That means it's Mailbag Wednesday. You guys send in your questions throughout the week to supply us with the hot topics that you want us to discuss. We'll dive into those here in a second. But first, got something for you all out there now that it's March Madness. Hey, college basketball fans, the madness is right around the corner. And to help you get prepared to dominate your bracket, Gary Parrish and Matt Norlander of the Eye on College Basketball podcast are hosting a fun and interactive bracket engineer event presented by Nissan. Join our college basketball experts along with special guest Kenny Smith on Monday, March 15th at 5 p.m. Eastern for an hour-long Zoom call as they give you the insights needed to engineer the perfect bracket and dominate this year's tournament. Register now for your chance to join this special event by clicking the sign-up link in the description of this episode. Again, enter for your chance to join this special event by clicking the sign-up link in the description of this episode. Okay, uh, Kevin, let's dive into these. We've got a good mix of some basketball that's relevant this time of the year, as well as some football. And we're going to start with the football side of things. Benjamin Smucker asks this question, who do you think are the most important recruits for Oregon over the past 20 years? That is the ones who changed the program perception and or played a role in other star players coming after them, thus having a lasting effect on the program even after graduating. Yeah, I think there's one answer here. It's Anthony Thomas yeah. for me, uh, if I had to pick just one. I mean, it it was the five-star out of Los Angeles, the most electric, most talked-about player in, in that class, uh, flipped from USC, who was the – the flag bearer of the Pac-12 for the Pac-10 at the time, I guess, and then flipped to Oregon as Oregon was starting to to win under Chip Kelly. I think that's definitely what you've got to say is the the one the most important in the 20 years. But I mean, there are some other big wins uh, for the Ducks that I mean, guys like Eric Armstead, um, Kayvon Thibodeau, and Justin Flo also come to mind. But if if you're gonna say one, it's got to be DeAnthony Thomas. I would agree. I think D'Anthony Thomas is probably the odds-on favorite for that question. I do think you have to acknowledge um, Cameron Colvin. While he wasn't the first one to come to Oregon out of that De La Salle, uh, what is it, quadruplet um, of, of players that showed up, he was the most highly respected. He was a five-star. He committed to Oregon on ESPN. Uh, and in large part, you know, helped bring with him or convince Oregon to take uh, Willie Glasper. Um, we also know uh, probably the best guy of the group showed up as a walk-on, and that's T.J. Ward, and left as one of the best players to come through the you know last 15 or so years in the secondary for the Ducks, and he went on to play in the NFL, and he developed a really good relation, you know, developed you know reputation for that secondary unit, um, a ton of talent, I, I think, was in that group. And Colvin was kind of the signature moment. I, Thomas helps in a big way because, like, 
he was that big first five stars. Like he wasn't the first five star Oregon signed, but it was like, hey, Oregon's getting him from USC. And then I think the next year, like Armstead kind of came to Oregon. And then I think another year after that, they signed another five star. Like, but Thomas, like like you said, Thomas really kind of set the table for five stars on a regular basis, air quotes, um, coming to, to the University of Oregon. Um, yeah, I, I definitely just think that if you, if you had to say one, I mean, there are still kids today who are picking up Oregon yeah. offers who are like, yeah, I remember when I was a six-year-old watching DeAnthony Thomas in the Fiesta Bowl. And you're like, oh, wow, okay. Uh, but maybe not six years old, but they, they remember that. And it's still something that kids will remember for the next few years. So I, I don't think his impact is done anywhere close to done yet. Mariota too, like... Oh yeah, absolutely. Because he picked Oregon, it's because of what he did once he got to Oregon. Um, like a lot of guys still reference Marcus Mariota, um, and that's a guy I I think Oregon will probably always be able to use on the recruiting trail, uh, no matter the success or lack of success that he sees in the NFL. He was always he will always be viewed as a, a very positive light, much like Anthony Thomas. I mean, he had Thomas didn't have. Uh, you know, impressive NFL career either. No, yeah, neither of those guys did, but I think it's just kind of the the myth, the legend. Yep. Good point on Mariota, just because he's someone that the fan base remembers, that college football remembers, is just a genuine good football player and good person. And his lasting impact, I think, is going to continue, whether it's in the Hawaiian community where he's still super active with his foundation. So that's a, that's another really good one. Okay, Lewis Band asks, where do you rank Mario Cristobal among previous Oregon coaches if he goes out and wins a third straight Pac-12 title? That's a good question. Yeah, I uh, I, I think this is definitely a difficult one. I mean, he's made now back-to-back, I guess their New Year's Six Bowls now, was about to call them BCS Bowls, and Chip Kelly had that run of four, including a national title, Mark Helfrich, um, had a, had some of his own there. Um, I think it's safe to say that Cristobal has kind of put himself above, above a lot of the older coaches. Uh, to me, I think he is now surpassed Bilotti. I think Bilotti just did it really well for a long time, but I think Mario Cristobal has just recruited one back-to-back Pac-12 championships uh, at this point. The only thing we're really missing is that playoff, that top four finish. Um, from his belt to really maybe put him above chip Kelly in the conversation. I think, I think you can even argue that he's done so much where he's recruited. He's shown those high players that he's even above Helfrich. Uh, But I think it could be debated where, where he sits in those Bilotti Helfrich Kelly uh, conversation. But I think he's definitely in that top three, but I don't think he's better than what chip Kelly did those four magical years. I'm trying to think what is it going to take for him to surpass chip because obviously we're seeing better recruiting success under crystal ball than chip Kelly. And I think that's what a lot of the, and I may piss off some people here, the new age duck fan will automatically point to, but I ultimately decide if you're a really good coach, not by the player that you bring in, but the product that you develop. And 
Chip, like you said, four straight BCS games. They won the Pac-12 three years in a row. Um, they could have won it a fourth almost in his final season. I I look at this and think he probably needs to at least win the conference four years in a row. He, that maybe doesn't include a playoff berth, but getting to the playoff would be a huge – feather in his cap to acknowledge him maybe being better than uh, the success that Chip Kelly had at Oregon. I, I do think right now, um, I mean, look, Chip Kelly changed college football. Like he was here for four years and in his four years, you, you know, he revolutionized the spread offense, made it common practice where everybody is now running some form of the spread offense that being and he was also very dialed into you know the sports science of the game and making sure his players were you know doing things to the maximum amount of time allowed while getting peak you know peak optimal levels of production that being said i think this program has taken another turn for the better with crystal balls fourth quarter program and, and the offseason development that we're seeing there they both have their positives, but it, I, I think Mario needs this. He needs to sustain the level of success at minimum for a couple more years to enter that, that sphere of chip. Kelly. And I think he's going to, I, I don't have, I mean, maybe you, I, you, I think you would agree with me, Kevin. I, I think this program is on a trajectory where I think they could make the college football playoff championship game in the next two or three seasons and if Oregon's recruiting continues like it has the last three over the next two or three seasons, they could very well win it because they'll have the talent in place that will be on par with an Alabama, with a Clemson, with an Ohio State, with an LSU. Yeah, I think that's kind of the talent and recruiting aspect is where maybe Chip wasn't able to crack through in the same way. And he almost did it multiple times, but – I always go back and I think it's a really good metric is the blue chip ratio, uh, something Bud Elliott, one of our uh, coworkers at 247 Sports developed a while ago. And it's how many percent of your roster is blue chip players. And Chip Kelly was working with 40% of the roster being a blue chip prospect. And now Mario Cristobal is getting to that level and now surpassing that and getting above that 50% margin. I think the future is only going to look brighter because there's only a handful of teams that have that. So when you have majority of blue chip players on the roster good things happen because if you, you go back and look the, the only teams that have ever played for a national title without being a blue chip 50 percent greater team are oregon twice so um and one of those was with chip chip kelly and the other one was the mark helfrich uh marcus mariota team in 2015 so i i think if you continue to get the roster better i think good things will be in store for cristobal but i i do think right now chip kelly has that top mark, and then you could debate where Mario Cristobal falls if it's better than Bolotti, which I, I think it is very close right now, but I do think he's surpassed. Bolotti has the the sustained success, but that being said, um, Bolotti also had a couple years where he had a, lo- he had a losing season. Um, he also had a couple years where he flirted with it. Now, you could argue that, you know, it's just three years for Mario Cristobal. I probably 
am not there yet like you are. Um, I, I think I would still put Bilotti ahead because just the longevity of success and the consistent success that he had. But that being said, um, they're also completely different programs. And Bilotti probably doesn't coach as long as he does, if we're being honest, if he was working under the same expectations that Cristobal is currently operating under with all the resources the program has. Like that's where this type of question gets really difficult is Bilotti didn't have these types of expectations every year till the tail end of his career where it was, Hey, you need to be a top 25 program. You need to be a team that needs to compete and win conference championships year in, year out, no matter who, uh, comes and who leaves the program between each year. Um, Bly didn't have that for a, a part of his his tenure as the head coach. Um, he exceeded expectations most years and had to break down a bunch of barriers for the program to get to the point where they're at now. Uh, it's a tough question, but I, I think Bly stills number two behind Chip. Um, I think I think it's safe to say though that that Cristobal has elevated himself well above. Helfrich, well above uh, Rich Brooks, well above um, Willie Taggart, uh, and is probably third in order right now for the coaching rankings if it was me. Um, all right, let's go to the next question here from, from Pat Brown. Which of the five DBs declaring for the NFL will have the best career? I think other than Holland, the guys are underrated. Oof. I, I, I think I'm going to go with Thomas Graham. I, I just – I think there's something so instinctual about his game. Um, I, I don't know necessarily think that he's like your one-on-one going to battle you every time, but when you put him in the backfield, he can read the defense, he can make the right play. And he does have very good one-on-one skills. Um, it's just, I, I think looking at the senior bowl this year, which is he was the only duck DB to participate. Um, I, I think he definitely got attacked on some of those one-on-one skills, but when they put him in coverage situations in the game, he made some really smart plays that made his team look very good. And I, I think he really elevated Oregon's secondary uh, in his three years of playing as a duck. Uh, I do think uh, this past year, not getting to see him to play also does play into that underrated aspect because there's a, a kind of, memory bias in the NFL draft situation where it's a, what have you done for me lately? And like Holland, I, I think Graham and, and Breeze suffer a little bit from this, um, from this, what have you done lately? Diamador Lenore had some big plays, especially in the Pac-12 championship. And I think he got rightly rewarded on some draft boards for it, but it'll be interesting to see kind of where he ends up. But the big day is Oregon's pro day where these guys will get to say, okay, this is what you do. And I, I think we will see some good days from pretty much all of Oregon's DBs. I, I don't know if uh, Nick Pickett ends up getting drafted. I, I, I don't expect him to, but I do think he's taking the steps to maybe work his way on to being an undrafted free agent and make a practice squad. I would probably say Thomas Graham. I would be in agreement with you. Um, longevity. He's always matched up with the opponent's top receiver. It felt like, and did relatively well, if not really good uh, in most cases, I mean, he had his moments where he got beat, but everyone does. Everyone's not perfect. Um, but every, you know, game in game out, he locked up with the top corner, uh, excuse me, top receiver uh, of that team. 
they were playing that week. I think the slu- the super sleeper wild card guy is Brady Breeze because for three years of his career or two and a half years of his career, he was a special teamer backup guy. And then for about a five or a six game stretch as a junior during the 2019 season, he played at an all American level. And I, I, you know, if he, if, if you would have put those four or five, six games that he did and stretched it across a 12, 13 game season, I mean, we're talking about a guy that would, would be generating first round draft pick discussion, second round draft pick type, type discussion. That's going to be the question is, can he play at that level where he was so good consistently? And if he can't, his stock drops significantly. And that's going to be, I mean, unfortunately for him, he, he opted out of the senior year. So he didn't get an opportunity to play in, in football uh, this year for the Ducks. There's no you know, real combine uh, in Indianapolis for the NFL. So his pro day in Eugene is going to be just an, an uber important moment for his career where it truly could make or break him, you know, getting drafted or trying to make himself onto a practice squad. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that he has a ton of potential. I'm very curious to see it, but those four or five games towards the end of the 2019 season were just so, so good. And then he followed it up. Some of it was just being in the right place at the right time, but I mean, that's football. It's instinctual and making the plays when you're supposed to. And he did that. Um, also kind of wonder with him opting out, I think it actually might have been the right decision with oh, 100%. Javon and Thomas Graham, not there. Uh, he might've been put into a role that, I don't know if I don't want to say he wasn't ready for, but would have been a very difficult ask and could have hurt his film. So I, I don't blame him at all. I think he made the right decision kind of after the 2020 se- season. I think looking back, I think all those guys kind of made a really good decision for the professional futures and you can't blame him at all. But you're right. Brady Breeze is a dude that I, I think with a good pro day could definitely work himself uh, onto a team and I'm not sure if he, again, I'm not sure if he gets drafted, but I think some teams might find him as like a sixth round guy and just be pleasantly surprised with what he gets. Yeah, he's not going to be, um, and then when I, I threw out the first round deal, like that was if he had played his senior year and did what he did during that last stretch of the 2019 season over a full regular 2020 season. He's not going to be a first round pick. He's not going to be a second, third, fourth, fifth round pick. I'm with you. Like if he gets drafted, it's going to be in the sixth to the seventh round, most likely. Um, for, for Brady Breeze. All right, next question from Duck Greatness. Do you think Oregon will ever have another player reach a Marcus Mariota level of endearment? If so, is there a player on the roster right now that could? Um, it's hard to say to include the freshmen because they haven't made any kind of impact yet. Um, I don't think there's a guy on the team right now that's a returner that makes that level, Kevin. But I, I do think there was maybe a possibility that Penny Sewell could have reached that level if he had played this year and it was a full season and uh, he lived up to the expectations. And then I kind of think as Herbert's success goes in the NFL, the endearment for Herbert will continue to rise, even though it wasn't really – spectacular, you know, from start to finish from him at Oregon. I, I agree with her. 
Herbert. I think that's kind of going to be a, a late riser one. I mean, he's the local Eugene kid. He's well respected by everyone across football. Um, I, I know he's not on the team anymore, but I, I do feel like he kind of got an unfair shake having to be the quarterback for the like starting quarterback for the final six games of the Halford era. Uh, and then got dealt a pretty serious injury that took him what five games, his sophomore season. Mm -hmm. So um, I I think if he maybe would have had better fortune coming into the program, things would have been different, but I mean, just seeing him light it up, I think it's someone that everyone can be proud of. I, I randomly see chargers jerseys when I'm out at the grocery store, which is just really Really odd for me because I'm like, well, why are people in Portland Chargers fans? But then I'm like, oh yeah, it's a Herbert jersey, duh. Um, or it's just a Chargers t-shirt for Herbert. Uh, so it's just one of those things of just like, it's it's definitely changed. Um, and, and I think like Mariota, it's one of those players. But right now I agree. I think Sewell's the only guy. I think there are some people that are re- going to really follow Kayvon Thibodeau, but um, with him, I, I expect him to go to the pros and just kind of with the shortened season fans, not being able to be there this past year, I think it's going to be difficult for any of the guys on the current team to really stand out. And I, I think there might be guys that have their fan bases. I know that like a guy like Michael Pittman has become super popular on YouTube and, and Twitch, but I don't think that the overall fan base will find that as endearing um, like Marcus was. Cause I, I think that's just a, unrepeatable sensation and to give anybody that kind of uh, expectations is just very difficult. This was intended to be a football question, I think, but Sabrina and Eskew and to an extent, Peyton Pritchard, they could absolutely, they could, they could probably be in that discussion. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I think the, the fan base, loves both of those players and I, I think those will always be kind of I, I know Sabrina's from Northern California but uh, with Peyton being from uh, West Lynn I think there's a lot of homegrown nature and just a lot of respect for what they did for the community because I mean y- you went to those women's basketball games towards the end there I mean standing room only people going crazy the entire game because it's I mean it, it, there's going to be an affinity for both of those players long-term um, in Eugene. And I mean, if you say Mount Rushmore of Oregon in the past 10 years, I don't think you could not, you can't not put Sabrina on there. Yeah, You can't put Mariota is definitely there, but I mean, I think we've kind of their post careers, Justin Herbert might be well working himself into one of those guaranteed spots. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Herbert's going to have some revisionist history where he was being booed as a sophomore at some point, junior even, to where everyone in five or ten years could be talking about how, oh, yeah, I'm the biggest fan of Justin Herbert. Not that everyone doesn't support him, but uh, I think people are going to be really high on him for years to come, as they should be. Um, Herbert is very much cut from the same cloth as Marcus Mariota was. Okay, uh, next question from Dr. Bill Quacks. If Doc Brown gave you the DeLorean and said, you can travel back in time to bring back one former Duck player to be on the current team, but it cannot be a quarterback, who would you bring? That is a really good question. Uh, I, I think there's so many different ways you can go with it. I'm like, do you want to bring back one of the like really talented 
uh, tight ends, uh, maybe an, a, one of the elite pass rushers, um, like Nada or someone like that. I mean, oh, man, I, I think I, I really selfishly just want one more year of Panay Sewell. <laughs> as bad as that is, I mean, I feel like that's just so recent and robbed, but I think one of the elite pass rushers, whether it's like a Dion Jordan, like that year he had, uh, I think would just be so fun to watch, especially if we're putting him onto the 2021 team and having a Kayvon and Dion Jordan, just like that would take the defense to be one of the best defenses just nationally because you just couldn't get a pass off. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of the one area I'd like to see Oregon be really strong next year. And so I, th- I think I'm actually going to go with Deion Jordan or Eric Armstead. I think one of those two dudes, because they were just so dominant their senior years at Oregon and pair them with Kayvon in 2021. That would just be a nasty defense. Give me Haloti Nada. Um, I, I think you have Kayvon on the outside already and you pair him with a mountain of a man in the middle who also needs to be double teamed. And you now basically have to commit at minimum six guys, almost every possession or every snap to protect the quarterback because of two guys. And you, you could basically be in a position where you only need to rush four guys or maybe five to get to the quarterback and teams that you're playing are having to keep six or seven guys in the pocket to protect the quarterback. That changes everything about your defense. And seeing how good Nada was against the run as well, like that would make the life of Justin Flo, uh, Noah Sewell, and Isaac Slade Matuatia just so much easier, knowing that the mountain of a man, Holodi Nada, was in the middle clogging up. Uh, all those blockers and freeing up free lanes for those guys to just go crushing uh, and hit dudes. I think that would be an awesome addition. I think we're on complete agreement. A defensive lineman would just change the entire, like an an elite, absolutely demolisher defensive lineman would just be unreal for next season, especially with cave on there. So I think we're in pretty much agreement on that one. If we, if it was offensive player and we couldn't go quarterback, that changes things, I think, for a little bit. Um, part of me says Royce Freeman, LaMichael James, you know, one of the many great running backs Oregon has had, just because C.J. Verdell, and no offense to him, but every year he's been here, he's gotten hurt. And, you know, those guys, you know, could maybe be the bell cow and Verdell could be the secondary guy. But I also go with, like, what is life like for, for Oregon if you bring back one of um, their great tight ends that, that they have had? Uh, you know, you pick, pick any of them. I mean, even go back to like the, the late 90s, early 2000s, like a Justin Peel or George Reister or a Tim Day and put them on this roster or a Dante Rosario um, and, and put them on this roster. And I, I think you look at a, an, an offense that all of a sudden goes up a notch. But the but your Penne Sewell comment also like it's kind of like in 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 joke, but actually also in 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 serious mode because it makes a ton of sense too. Yeah, I I think thinking in the context of twenty twenty one, I think Penne Sewell would just be 
would be actually really good, but the tight ends is definitely where you go. I mean, even to do just a, a really good receiving tight end uh, could just be a game changer, especially in Joe Moorhead's offense, having like one of those seasoned veteran tight end dudes, like, Oh man. I mean, you, you'd really get to see a lot of the playbook open up just because last year they were dealing with so many injuries at tight end that we, we don't really know what Joe Moorhead's offense looks like with a full healthy complement of a blocking tight end and a pass catching because the, the rotation last year wasn't really open to allow that. I mean, we saw DJ Johnson get a lot of playing time catching him a number of touchdowns, but he wasn't even primarily the guy going into camp. Okay. Let's go to the next question. Now um, this is from Charlie Werner or where I hope I pronounced your, your last name correctly. Do you guys think if Justin Herbert wins the Super Bowl, people will think of him as the greatest QB to ever come through Oregon, even though he didn't put up the stats, have the accolades, and didn't make the playoffs at his time at Oregon? This is another one that kind of goes back to what we were talking about with um, the endearment of Justin Herbert. I don't know if he will be considered the greatest ever. I have a hard time seeing – I mean, the person that's going to – surpass Marcus Mariota um, at quarterback is probably going to be someone who wins the Heisman and then wins the national championship. Um, I, I don't, I don't think if, if you win the Heisman and you don't win the national championship, you surpass, you surpass Mariota. And I don't think if you don't win the Heisman, but win the national championship, that's going to surpass you from, from Marcus Mariota. I think you got to win both to, to honestly surpass him. Uh, to be the greatest quarterback. Oh yeah, I I agree that it it really does come down to to be the greatest Oregon quarterback. It's going to be taking win a national championship and and win the Heisman. And maybe the only way you don't win the Heisman is if you have one of those deals where there's just like a running back or a wide receiver that just goes absolutely off as well. Um, like what happened with uh, Reggie Bush and Carson Palmer. Y- yeah, just where it's just such a combination where it's like, okay, well you both deserve it, but I, I, I don't think that's going to be a situation where Justin Herbert's revision is going to be the best Oregon quarterback. Now we might go back and look like, Oh wow. Justin Herbert is a hall of famer one day. Where does he rank among the best quarterbacks to come from Oregon? Yeah. I mean, you're going to have to beat Dan Fouts for that one. Um, but I, 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 I think we might say that he will pass Justin Herbert based off his first year has already taken home some more accolades than Marcus has in his six years in the NFL. So I think that question is starting to be answered already, but I don't think you can ever put revisionist history onto what they did at Oregon, even though Justin Herbert looked the part in so many games, he just, I mean, never got quite there to the Heisman national conversation. He was always looked at as a, a draft prospect when he got talked about from his days at Oregon, not for what he was doing necessarily with the ducks. That's right. That's right. Okay. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Yov Kaufman. Uh, he asked, do you think Dane Altman cares about Oregon not being ranked in the final AP poll after winning the last 10 of 11 games and winning the conference, or will he use it as motivation? Um, I can tell you right now that, he doesn't really care about rankings, at least publicly. He doesn't. I mean, he 
he's going to he's going to care to an extent that his program isn't getting the recognition that he maybe feels that they deserve but having a number next to their name may not indicate that they're getting the proper recognition that they deserve like i don't think if you threw Oregon at 25 there's they all of a sudden at least my tune would say oh, now they're ranked, they're, you know, they're justly, you know, being considered for where they should be. I, I would still be beating the drum that they're severely underrated. Um, is this going to be used as motivation? 100%. And the team awards that came out this week will also be mo- used as motivation um, because Andy Edfield won the head coach of the, uh, the uh, coach of the year award and Altman probably could care less about that one, but more so the fact that his guys weren't acknowledged uh, Chris Duarte did not win player of the year and Eugene Amarui uh, was a first team player for the PAC 12. Um, but I, I think there's going to be some motivation. It wouldn't surprise me if this team comes out with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, because for now the second straight sport football in the fall and basketball. Now the men's team is probably not playing with or not receiving the same recognition that, uh, they should be possibly getting from within the conference or from nationally as well. So I, I don't think this team will use, I don't think Dana's going to be upset about it or cares, but he will use it as motivation. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely a, uh, something that you kind of remind the players like, Hey, we're not getting enough credit kind of to our names. Go, like let's, let's show them up. And that's exactly what I think will happen. But I mean, Dana is not, you're right. Dana is not a guy that's sitting there counting, look, looking up which AP voter voted which and remembering their names. Now he's not doing that, but he, uh, I think it just as a team, he wants to make sure his guys are properly rewarded. And I, and I hope the players also say like, wait a minute, our coach put together this squad dealt with all the things that Oregon had to deal with this year and isn't getting recognized for it. And that also is some external motivation heading into the uh, the conference tournament. To give you some kind of perspective for the listener where Dana Altman's at, um, he was asked in a media interview this week about just the opportunity that Oregon has to claim some wins and if he's kind of looked at the metrics. And he joked that he, he tends to look at Ken Palm. Uh, it's a website for analytics, deep dive type stuff once a week. But – he said he doesn't really take a long look at the NCAA's net rankings, which is used in the seeding of the NCAA tournament all that often. It's a metric that's updated every single day. And you could go and look every single day. And all it takes is a couple seconds really to look at it. He said he hadn't looked at it in a long time. And when he did on Monday, he was shocked to see that Southern California and Colorado were so highly ranked in the net Colorado, at the time of this recording was 12th, Southern California 15th. And not shocked by he didn't think they justified the rankings, but more so of like, well, I didn't realize that they were actually receiving the the, the proper ranking that they should be getting uh, in, in the net ranking. And so that gives you kind of a perspective of like, he, he is not tracking the opponents that they're playing and where they are. And if it's a big game or not, he's literally just focused on, we need to keep winning. We need to keep winning. We need to keep winning because it'll figure itself out down the road. Um, so he's not, a, he's not one to uh, worry about rankings per se, and at least not publicly acknowledge that. And, you know, off the record wise or, or, you know, back channel wise, we don't hear that at all either. 
So last question from Kevin, not Kevin on the show, different Kevin, uh, March Madness 83, unless Kevin has a, a uh, alias that we don't know about. Um, big picture on Sunday. What conference do the Duck men want nothing to do with in their region of the bracket? Big 10 teams with elite bigs and good shooting or physical Big 12 teams with good guard play? Please no Big 12 teams. Well, Kevin, unfortunately, I'm going to disagree with you. I think I would much rather play the Big 12 team who are physical and have good guards, but maybe don't necessarily have as many huge bodies at the, at the poor, at the forward and center positions that the big 10 teams have. Um, I, I think Oregon's men's team is in a position where they are a matchup nightmare for everybody, except for one type of team, a team who has the same athleticism as they do and a significant height advantage on the block. I don't, and there's not a lot of those teams out there. Um, I think Michigan's got some good size. Illinois has some good size. Gonzaga has some good size. Baylor out of the Big 12 has a decent, a decent amount of size. But there aren't a lot of teams who are simply physically taller and equally as athletic or more athletic than Oregon. There's plenty of teams who are who are taller than Oregon but they don't have the athletes that Oregon does, nor do they have the forwards and the centers that Oregon has that have the skill that the Ducks do on the perimeter. And so I would much rather play a team who's got a, a, a significant size advantage, but you have the significant athletic advantage and just hope that in one-on-one -on -one matchups that overcomes the advantage that they have of height. Yeah, I tend to agree that you you want the more physical teams and you just hope that your team play uh, shows up. I think it was, was it Tony uh, Stubblefield, one of the men's assistant coaches uh, posted a video. I think he retweeted it. Um, I think it was on Monday uh, from the Oregon state game. And it was just a really, really nice possession, but it's where the Oregon men's basketball team has started to click to where they can just use their, th their skills, their athleticism to create a plenty of open shots but when you have a lot of big aggressive tall type teams with athleticism as well those opportunities aren't as open uh, and they aren't created as easily and I, I think that's where Oregon would find themselves at a really disadvantage uh, in the tournament and when you only have those one few days to prepare I think that would be very difficult for the Ducks to do. Yeah it's, it's going to be interesting to see the matchups that play out I mean I'm on record on this podcast thinking that this might be the second best team in Dan Altman's time at Oregon. Um, and they could make a real good case to, to compete with that final four team. And it's, but it's going to come down to the matchups and how well Oregon plays in tournament time in Vegas this week. And also in the NCAA tournament in Indianapolis starting next week, they're in the tournament, but it's how far can they go now? And that'll all depend upon health Foul trouble and shooting. If if they shoot well like they have been, they're going to be a tough out. And it wouldn't surprise me if they make the Final Four. If they have a cold night shooting the basketball and they're playing against a team who's bigger than they are and just as, if not more, athletic than they are, they're probably going to lose. Um, they can beat that team that's bigger and as athletic than they are if they shoot well. But if they have that combination of a poor shooting night combined with a team that's bigger and more athletic – it's going to be tough for them 
to win that that type of a matchup. But any other game out there, any other team that they play, you know, a team that's maybe bigger than them but slower or less athletic, I think Oregon wins. A team that's just as as big as they are and and just as athletic, I think Oregon wins that. You know, I think they've got the coaching advantage. And then if it's they play a team that's smaller than them and less athletic than them, they're going to crush them. You know, and and I, that's you know, there's only a few teams, there's only a handful of teams out there that I think can truly control the Ducks. And Oregon doesn't have a puncher's chance to win. Um, and, and you just hope that you don't play that team. And if you do, you you play them as late into the tournament as possible. Um, it's going to be fun ride to see play out. We'll also cover the women's team as well in the tournament for March Madness, where they go and how far they go as well. So uh, stay tuned for that coverage here on the podcast as well as on DuckTerritory.com. And before we wrap up the show, thank you for submitting the questions for this week's mailbag. Secondly, please give us a review. Go to iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use to uh, listen to the show. Give us a review. That helps. And third, make sure to go check out the subscription options on DuckTerritory.com right now. You can subscribe for $1 for your first month, $9.95 there after that, or go an annual route and get billed $75.18, save over $35 uh, about, you know, when you compare it to paying the month-to-month rate. So highly encourage you guys to check that out as well. It's the best way to support the podcast and continue that we do this on a regular basis. And until we do a mailbag next week, thank you for submitting your questions. You've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast.